This podcast was recorded on April 14th, 2020. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and people outside the binary. This is Less Stupid with Thomas Huda, a show that's completely uncut, uncensored, and unimpressed with some of our congressional delegation here in Oregon. I'm going to be honest. That's why I'm very flattered and thrilled to have Doyle Canning on the show. Hi, Doyle. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi. Good morning. I'm Doyle Canning. I'm a Democrat running for Congress in Oregon's 4th District, and really glad to to join you this morning. Awesome. Well, uh, I like to start off with a question, which is, uh, I ask this of everybody, what's one controversial opinion you have? But first, I want to make a brief disclaimer for um, all my, you know, tens of fans out there that... I had an allergic reaction to something, so my face is kind of red and like a little swollen. I've got Benadryl, so that's kind of tapering it off. But uh, if I don't smile as much, that's probably because it just kind of hurts a little bit and my oh, face no. is kind of dry. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but what, and you can define this as broadly as you want, what is a controversial opinion that you have about anything? controversial opinion that I have um, well parenting styles can be very personal and controversial and I am of the opinion that little kids should spend a lot of time playing and (laughs) that's what they're getting to do right now with school being not uh, in session So I think it's really healthy for them to be at home and have all day to play. And uh, some people think that's controversial, I guess. (laughs) I Somehow I thought you were going to go in the direction of um, not hitting your kids, which I don't know how you feel about that. But some people have very strong views. I think it seems to me a little odd to have incredibly strong views either way. Like, oh, I'm definitely going to hit my kids or, you know, I am absolutely, well, I guess, I guess I would be a little more sympathetic to the view that, you know, you shouldn't do that at all. But, um, I don't know. So, uh, with your kids, um, having all this downtime right now, um, how are you able to like, how is the transition as a parent for you being a parent? I'm not a parent. Um, been from having the brick and mortar schooling and now having to do everything remotely? Um, it's a transition for all of us, I think, of all ages, this stay-at-home order. this What we're going through right now um, is massive on a societal level, and it's affecting all of us in different ways. And for me as a parent, you know, it's nice to have my kids at home more. It's also challenging (laughs) to, I'm used to having them at school during the day. And that's when I do a lot of my organizing work, my campaigning. And uh, so we juggle. And I, we had a, a group Zoom call of the parents for my daughter's first grade class last night. And it was great to connect with you know, other people who are going through similar things and, and hear, you know, people's strategies. Um, some people are, you know, getting up very early in the morning before their children to get their, their own work done and getting very little sleep. Um, other people are trying to, you know, homeschool and work from home at the same time. Other people have, you know, moms especially, and this is statistically true across the country from what I've read, have quit their jobs because they can't do it all. Um, And, 
you know, other people have been laid off suddenly and are now relying on our school's, uh, you know, grocery and lunch delivery program that they've put in place. And so, you know, people are just going through a lot right now. And I think we need to be really kind to ourselves um, about how we are uh, moving forward in this moment and taking care of each other. For me, you know, I'm running for Congress because we deserve a government that doesn't <laughs> doesn't treat us this way. You know, the right. catastrophic failures of the federal government in this moment will go down in history as one of the darkest hours of our country. And um, and so my plan and my platform for moving through this COVID crisis uh, includes. You know, public health has to be the top priority. Like, we can't recover the economy until we stop the virus. And in order to stop the virus, we have to stay at home. And in order to stay at home, we have to be able to make ends meet. And so right. that's why I support a universal basic income program for the duration of this emergency so that everyone can be supported in doing what is necessary to stop the virus because we really are all in this together. We're so interconnected. And as long as we have a situation where people are falling behind on their rent and mortgage payments and are falling behind, um, unable to put food on the table during this crisis, we'll have well, it will continue longer because people will need to go out out of their homes and, and, and work and then the virus will continue to spread. So that's really, you know, for me at the at the crux of this is that we have to put the public health objective of stopping the virus uh, at the top, you know, at the center of the policy. And that's not what we're seeing right now. You know, right. countries like South Korea have aggressively implemented testing of, uh, you know, the population and have been able to not just flatten the curve, but like get ahead of the curve because of that. And we're not doing that here. You know, there is so much evidence of uh, undercounting COVID and right. uh, because it's under-tested. I and think I heard that we're only 19... Um I don't remember how many tests there were in Oregon. I want to I want to say it was 19 in Oregon or maybe that was Lane County, but it's a severe under-testing that's mm -hmm. happening for sure. Mhm. Mm yeah. And so we don't even know the true scope of this. So how are we going to get a handle on it and stop it without that? And so, you know, for me it's not just flatten the curve, but eradicate the virus. And to do that, we have to implement mass testing and tracing um, with you know, privacy protections, of course, but this is what public health agencies are for. This is why we have them, yeah. is, <laughs> is to yeah. manage this kind of a crisis. And you know, our federal government isn't helping our local public health authorities do that at the scale and with right. the speed that's necessary right now. Well, one thing that I appreciated about your organizing, and you do have a long history of being a community organizer, uh, is that uh, a few months ago when uh, General Soleimani was killed, you know, we had this um, rally at the Wayne Morse Free Speech Plaza against, uh, you know, warlike actions against Iran. And um, 
one of the things that stuck out very vividly, because for me, I'm a very visual kind of learner, was, uh, and I'm talking about this because of your uh, advocacy for universal, universal basic income, people will often say, how are we going to pay for it? And you look at these activists who held up this really long mm-hmm. um, handkerchief cloth style representation of the federal budget, and just about everything else is dwarfed by defense spending, um, which we kind of recognize is not entirely about our defense per se, but is about carrying out a foreign policy that is aggressive uh, in places that, you know, the U.S. has destabilized in the Middle East. Um, and so, you know, were you to become uh, uh, my congresswoman, the first congresswoman to ever represent this district, um, what I'm would ready. your approach be? <laughs> yeah, I think you are. Um, what would your approach be um, in terms of like foreign policy and use of the defense budget that we have? Sure. It's a great question. I Uh, There's so much powerful anti-war activism here in our community, and a lot of it is led by veterans. And we have a strong partnership with our Veterans for Canning uh, group and the endorsement Mm -hmm. of a progressive veterans organization called Common Defense. And we developed our foreign policy platform, you know, in dialogue with Mm -hmm. the community and with veterans. How, you know, what do we want our foreign policy to look like and how can our district lead that conversation nationally when I represent the fourth district in Congress? And so we call the platform End the Forever Wars and it's extensive. You can check it out on our website, which is Mm canningforcongress.com. And some of the most important elements, which I think you're getting at, are the utterly outrageous <laughs> military <laughs> sure. industrial complex that yeah. is like a vacuum cleaner for money which um, by the way Eisenhower <laughs> called that the military industrial congressional complex back uh-huh. when that was in its infancy because yes, of the role the Congress, that Congress plays Congress has uh its most primary constitutional function is appropriations like Congress decides the budget yeah. and budgets are a moral document and yep. when we look at the budget of the United States government, we, you know, as you point out, the budget for the Pentagon is, um, you know, many times of magnitude greater than the budgets of other other countries' militaries. And that is because of the extensive U.S. intervention all over the world. Um, and these big defense contractors that's primary profit function uh, comes from our tax dollars. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think it's important to point out that our congressman has, for this campaign, this primary challenge that, I'm, that we're running in right now, has accepted money from the biggest defense contractors in the country. Um, we're talking about Northrop Grumman. We're talking about Honeywell. We're talking about um, Lockheed Martin. We're talking about the companies that, uh, you know, are are the beneficiaries of that big Pentagon budget. It's not the the GIs and the veterans, and you know, it's not the work the people who do the work of the military who are the beneficiaries of this. It's billionaires and big corporations 
who make bombs and drones and surveillance systems and weapons. And I don't think that's who should have the ear of our congressional representatives. And so that's why I'm running this campaign. This campaign is 100% financed by regular people, people in the district and people all over the country who want to support progressive champions in Congress. Well, all over the country, I saw that Sean King is endorsed you and tweeted out about your campaign, bringing more attention to that. Uh, if anybody doesn't know him, he's a he's a, an outstanding activist, um, particularly for the African-American community and racial justice at large, but was also an integral part of Bernie Sanders campaign as well. Uh, I was living in New York when Bernie kicked off his 2020 campaign, um, and I got to go down to Brooklyn at Brooklyn College, which was his alma mater and see his very first rally and saw Jane Sanders speak and Sean King speak. So that was a really um, outstanding stamp of, you know, excitement and approval of, you know, this campaign that you've launched here in Oregon's mm -hmm. fourth. I want to talk a little bit about um, the district because, uh, you know, these, these Oregonians have had the same representative for what is it like 16 terms, like 30 years or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that I heard argued, and I would love to hear your your um, response to this argument, was, you know, this is not just the Eugene district or the Corvallis district. It extends out toward Florence and goes all the way down to the south coast, mm -hmm. Bandon, Gold Beach, Brookings, um, which I know are places where you've, uh, many of those places you've hosted events. Um, the argument that I've heard is that this is such a swing district. It's It's not as reliably blue. And so um, I've heard this, frankly, from people who are uh, strong allies of Peter DeFazio, the incumbent. And they say, mm -hmm. if we bring in somebody who's too far left in this primary, we're going to lose in the general um, because he is the perfect candidate uh, for this district, which is why he's been able to hold it so long. Now, my, my thinking is, if you have a district that you call a swing district, it has to have swung. Like, this district hasn't swung since, I think, the 70s or the 80s. Mm -hmm. I lived in Minnesota 2nd, which went back and forth between this this really reprehensible John Klein guy and Angie Craig, who is currently in that seat now. Um, so I, I was kind of like, yeah, you could tell me that this is a swing district if you want, but it hasn't swung in forever. I think that if we nominate someone like you who has the excitement uh, of this grassroots campaign that you're that you're um, doing, and frankly, somebody who hasn't taken all these airline donations either, um, and you can actually stand up to some of the biggest polluters in terms of our carbon emissions, um, that you have a good chance. But I'm I'm showing my bias, obviously. There, I want. What's your take? on that argument that this is not a safely blue district. We have mm -hmm. to go and put the same guy in because he's got this name recognition and this kind of firewall. Sure. Well, I appreciate your question. I think the you are correct. The district has been in Democratic control uh, since the early 1970s, since the current congressman's former boss was elected. So it's been the same political uh, lineage. Um, since the early 70s. And uh, the, the reason why there hasn't been, um, you know, a change is because there's never been a challenger. And <laughs> I am in I am that challenger. It's 2020. Yeah. It's not 1986. It's not 1996. It's not 2006 anymore. 
the district has changed, the world has changed, and our, you know, what constitutes progressive leadership has changed. And, uh, you know, this is a progressive district in terms of the Democratic electorate. This is a district that went for Senator Sanders in 2016 by a landslide yes, it in did. Lane, Lane County and Benton County by 31 point margins. Those are unheard of wow. margins in politics. And okay. we're Oregon. This is like some guy from Vermont who's like four time zones away, you know, three time zones away. And we just resonated on his message so much, too. And I, I, I can appreciate that as well. Right. And so even in those more rural, more redder counties in a general election, Bernie won the primary by double digits, hands down in everyone in 2016. So in terms of the Democratic electorate, what does the Democratic electorate want in a candidate? No corporate money. Medicare for all, an unabashed and unapologetic progressive agenda, taking on the billionaires and big corporations and fighting for us. And that's who I am. And that's why I'm running. And that's why I will win this election. And I will win the general election, because that's what the Democratic uh, electorate wants. Now, this question of like, oh, it's, it's a close district. It's a swing district. Um, it's a lot about fear. You know, it's a very similar message to what we hear from the establishment on the presidential level. Right. Now is not the time to break out with these big ideas. Cling to the past. Let's go back to the Obama years um, when things were better before Trump. Uh, for a lot of us, things were not better then. This Trump, I, I, I don't even, <laughs> I don't want sure. anyone to take my words out of context to sure. somehow make apologies for the atrocities of this administration, okay? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what I'm saying is now is the time to move forward. And now is the time to embrace the future of the Democratic Party. And the future of the Democratic Party is multiracial, is working class, is energizing young voters. And Bernie Sanders has the support overwhelmingly of the electorate under 45. And that's who's really mobilizing on this campaign in my election. I have an intergenerational coalition, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing so much energy coming from young people. And it's really exciting. And for establishment Democrats to dismiss that um, and to write that off is a losing strategy in the long term. Okay, like mm -hmm. if we want to build yeah. the future of the party, this is the future of the party. And well, you may not think... like it, but it's a train that's coming at you. And so <laughs> you can get on it or you can get out of the way. Sure. And I frankly think that they're, you know, I'm 26 right now. Uh, and uh, I frankly think people in my generation do not have the kind of automatic loyalty to the Democratic Party that has been kind of expected of people who are on the more left side of the political spectrum. And I think so people are not necessarily just going to fall in line and vote Democrat if the Democrat uh, Party doesn't actually reach out and embrace some of those policy ideas. For example, you know, Joe Biden kind of has been asked for many months, hey, You've got this challenger, Bernie Sanders, who has all this energy and excitement from the exact same coalition that you have um, rallied together here in Eugene, quite literally rallied together here in OR4. Um, 
And so, you know, what do you, and Biden says we're going to, well, he would veto Medicare for all if Congress approved it. And so his concession most recently was, you know what? All right. I hear y'all. We're going to lower the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60. Hillary Clinton ran on a platform of 50 or 55 for Medicare. Uh, and so it's, it is it's that, like, it's like face palm. I just, yeah. I, just, I don't, <laughs> exactly. I don't know what to say. It's so tone deaf, you know? Mm. Um, well, and well, it's, it's, it's really disheartening because we have to beat Donald Trump. There yeah. is absolutely no question that mm. this must happen. And mm. in order to do that, we need to rally Democratic voters. And we can't rally Democratic voters with a platform that is even more conservative than 2016. Mm. Um, so that is my view. Mm. Others may disagree. But sure. that is, um, you know, that's my position on it. Sure. Well, I'm glad that you have optimism about the possibility of defeating Trump, because to be 100% honest with you, this is just me as uh, everyday Eugenian, Oregonian, is that um, I'm not saying I've given up hope, but I'm saying that the likelihood that that will actually occur is very low because... You know, I was born in 93, so I've never seen a, a president be unseated in the midterm election in, in, after four years. You know, Clinton was eight years, Bush eight years, Obama eight years. And then, um, you know, to, uh, I guess you could say to Trump's credit, he has a very excited base of support. Um, and they're going to turn out. And they turned out overwhelmingly in some of these primary states. Um, so, uh, but, but let me... Let, we don't need to, to get all doom and gloom about that uh, that <laughs> challenge of the of the executive branch, right? Because Congress is a co-equal branch of government, um, and you know, uh, Albert Lee is somebody who I've seen running in. Is that Oregon's second? Or, uh, I don't know. If you I believe remember. so. Yeah, in Portland. Yeah, I think so. It's the mm -hmm. it's the smallest district by geography, um, and you know, he talks about. Uh, he talks often about how democracy requires choice, and that's a district that's been represented by the same person, Earl Blumenauer, for um, a full generation as well. Um, and so, um, what do you think about what do you think about that? Do you think he's right? Do you think democracy requires choice, or or not? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know. Have you been in touch don't... with Albert at all? He's got some great ideas. Yeah, yeah, we are both endorsed by Brand New Congress, which mm -hmm. is an organization that originally recruited and ran Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign in 2018. And uh, Albert and I, and also Mark Gamba, who's, who's running just to the north of us, um, are all endorsed by Brand New Congress. So we're part of a network of candidates all over the country who are running on the, the brand new Congress platform, which is, you know, very similar to Senator Sanders, Medicare for all, um, aggressive climate action through a Green New Deal, um, and curbing the powers of immigration and customs enforcement, you know, repairing the tremendous harm of this country's immigration policy and supporting uh, new, new pathways to citizenship for for people who have been living and working and paying taxes and part of our communities here for generations now. Um, and so that is, uh, 
you know, we're in touch through the brand new Congress. And yeah, it's great to hear you've been in touch with Albert as well. Sure. Uh, well, I have a friend, uh, Tiger Gruber, who hosts a podcast called Talks with Tiger, and he had Albert on, uh, and he has a lot of wisdom. Um, but uh, he dissed electric cars a little bit. I'm sitting in an electric car, so that's my <laughs> only little beef with him. Um, it makes sense, though. His whole idea is that we shouldn't be in cars in general because it's just more, much more efficient to follow the model of like places like New York City, where you know I didn't have a car. It would have been kind of absurd to even have a car in that in Manhattan where I was living. And it is much more efficient, but gosh, I just do love my little vehicle here. I can play <laughs> really loud music. Uh, I'm running for mayor of Eugene, as you might know. I've got the car emblazoned with Huda for mayor, and I'm driving around playing really loud uh, rap, rap music and Earth, Wind, and Fire. So I go back and forth between Kendrick Lamar and Earth, Wind, and Fire, depending on uh, what neighborhood I'm in. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually, um, because this is like a kind of like an informal podcast, right? It's not the typical interview. Um, I... I am a hip-hop musician, but I'm also just a, a lover of music in general. Um, and I like to tell people that I want to ask musicians about their politics, and I want to ask politicians about music. Um, so, you know, these are challenging times, right? We are in, a, a, we always say this phrase, unprecedented times, this, this crisis, right? And for me, music is a place where I find a lot of solace um, mm -hmm. and comfort. Um, have you been listening to anything that's been helping you through it recently in terms of music? Well, I, you know, we had two great artists leave us in recent days. Um, one was Bill Withers, who was yeah. one of my favorite artists of all time. Um, Lovely Day is one of my m favorite songs of all time. And... Mm. Um, song that we danced to at my wedding. Um, you know, it's, it's something I grew up with. Uh, yeah. So I've been listening to that a lot. And also John Prine recently John Prine. passed uh, of complications from COVID, which is just heartbreaking. And right. I also Withers was not COVID related. So no. I want to make that clear for people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. And John Prine, you know, I grew up with his music as well. Um, and I actually used to perform in a, like a kind of alt country band. No way. What did you <laughs> <Yeah>. do? <laughs> I was a vocalist. And right so, on. Um, the songs Paradise and Angel from Montgomery were like our, our signature songs. They were always like the crowd favorites and my favorites. So wow. I ha it's been a long time since I picked up a guitar. Mm -hmm. I've not had a lot of time to do that in <laughs> recent years. What? You're not busy. Um, Come on. No, I'm just kidding. But I have been wanting to pick up a guitar and revisit those tunes to, you know, to honor John Prine and to just reconnect with the power of that, of that music. I love that you mentioned alt country. Um, <laughs> when I think of that, I, I like the Avett brothers a lot. Um, there's some, a lot of internet sort of like beef between Avett brothers and Mumford and sons. Cause they're uh -huh. in a similar kind of lane of music. And I am just like, if you know me, you know that I cannot even pretend to like Mumford and sons. I just think that <laughs> I just, I, it can't happen for me. Um, and, uh, but, but, 
uh, I'll, I'll, I'll parlay this a little back into like a more of a, a more of a social sociopolitical context. I think that, um, first of all, Lil Nas X with the song Old Town Road last year uh, was an amazing it. example right, my of country <laughs> hip hop crossover. Now, when I was in 2010, I was telling my um, band classmates about hip hop, which is what people often called, uh, you know, country rap back then. And um, it's just those are two of the genres that people have so frequently said, you know, ask somebody about music and they're like, oh, I like everything but rap or, oh, I like everything but country. Mm. Um Country and rap to me are the same fucking thing. Like it is, it is. Well, they both, both have roots in the blues, right? And so they do. You know, this is music that gives voice to the working class experience. And hundred um, percent. Yeah, I. You know, I'm a fan for sure. Right. It's just, it's just an <laughs> urban reflection of what it is to feel um, disenfranchised versus mm -hmm. of uh, ten typically a much more rural uh, expression of what it is to feel disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I really like um, that. But, but um, you know, I, on, I, on some level, I can understand that, for example, Eugene Mayer, Lucy Venice has kind of scoffed at the idea that, um, you know, hip hop is important and that's fine. You know, she, she, uh, in her generation, it didn't exist when she was growing up. She's 67. Um, and I'm not asking you to join my bandwagon of critiquing her. Um, but I gotta ask you, you know, like if you were to, if I were to say, you know, what's a hip hop artist who you appreciate, this is not to say you endorse all of their content, right? <laughs> But, you know, what in the hip hop vein, do you have any kind of favorite artists? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I was growing up in the 90s and like Tribe Called Quest was, you know, that was kind of the, the peak. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm always a fan of that kind of, I guess we would call it like retro 90s. <laughs> Sure. Back then now. it was called um, alternative hip hop. Yeah. yeah. But more jazz kind of instrumentation, mm -hmm. Q-tip, Fife mm -hmm. Dog. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And very political content too. Sure. Um, and, you know, the coup. Well, the is song We favorites. the People. Yeah. The coup yeah. is also great. Boots Riley at the, mm -hmm. at your, um, somewhat recent rally in uh at uo again where you talked about endorsing bernie sanders mm -hmm. and we had a bunch of um awesome young activists there uh we the people was on your playlist <laughs> yes. i took note because truly i mean from the perspective of like respectability politics um i'm not saying that i want people to like all the congress people to be bumping hip-hop because that's super cringy um but like there shouldn't be this this totally removed idea that like you know hip hop music is something that you know is is I don't know um, totally detached from politics because at the end of the day people are human beings and they listen to what helps speak to their experience and what inspires them to get up every day and you know serve their communities. Um, so I'm glad you had a question. Uh, I'm glad that you actually you know took that question seriously and to heart because it means a lot to me and I think to some of my listeners as well. Um, but, okay, I want to ask you uh, about a couple of things because climate and education are both very important um, in terms of the future of the society that we live in. And um, you mentioned that, you know, your kids are, uh, you know, have it's been a transition to do uh, school from home 
And I know it's been a real challenge for educators as well. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's they're working so hard to, right now. They're working incredibly hard. I was an educator before and I wasn't doing that in these times. Uh, so I can't, I can't even imagine the challenges. Um, but, you know, whether this is rega- regarding COVID-19 and the current crisis or not, you know, whether this is something that was part of your platform before um, this crisis emerged, um, in terms of education as uh, a policymaker on the federal level, right? What kinds of things do you support? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, my dream was to become a public school teacher. That's what I went to college to do. And I did my student teaching semester, teaching ninth, 10th, and 11th grade social studies. So I taught history, geography, and a kind of civics class that was called Issues in American Society. (laughs) And so we got to talk about lots of kind of controversial issues, which, you know, young people are always down to do. Um, So it was a great experience and really opened my eyes so much to, you know, what the profession of public school teaching is and um, how challenging it is and, you know, the changes that we need to make to really support our educators and support students. And... So my policy is a reflection of, of that and my studies of progressive education. And so I well, support Let me a, ask you, you, you called it a profession. Sorry to cut you off. Mm-hmm. And it is a profession, but it's one that's compensated practically like a hobby. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. that's really unfortunate because if you're talking yeah. about retaining the best talent in the profession, you know... Uh, I, I didn't mean to cut off exactly because you were about to say um, the policy that you support, mm-hmm. but um, having well, one of them teacher is pay. starting teacher salaries at sixty k. Um, nice. You know, we've seen this like wave, the red for ed movement of teachers all over the country, West Virginia, um, and even in Oregon. Uh, you know, in Oregon, the Red for Ed walkouts weren't so much about teacher pay as they were about overall funding for schools to be to be more functional. Um, sure. And but you know, teacher pay needs to be on the agenda too. And so you know, I support 60k salaries for public school teachers starting. I support a ban on private charter schools. Uh, period. Wow. Wow. And <laughs> I support. Um, you know, teachers having more respect and autonomy to respond to the needs of their individual students in in real time and not be so um, micromanaged and boxed in by a set of standards that may be uh, well-intentioned in that we want our kids to master a certain, uh, you know, vocabulary of of content in order to... You know, have the education that we want them to have. But what I'm hearing from teachers is that there's just so much pressure to teach to the standardized tests that it's really difficult um, to have any kind of flexibility and be able to respond to where your kids are at on a given day. Um, And so, you know, we have to unwind this rush to over test 
our kids and trust our teachers to do their job. And, um, you know, I did my, my undergraduate thesis on privatization of public education and looking at how global trade agreements like NAFTA and the WTO categorize education as a service um, that can be uh, privatized and public education as sort of a market. And so we're seeing that creeping privatization on a global scale and here in our country as well. Well, Betsy DeVos, if people don't know, uh, who basically runs education in this country now, had no experience at all in a public school, whether it was, she had no experience as an educator at all, frankly, but then never went to any public schools herself. Uh, and really her uh, credibility in the eyes of the Trump administration came from this uh, advocacy that she's doing for parochial schools mm-hmm. in which she's making uh, voucher programs available to funnel public money away from public schools in order to bring public dollars into parochial religious uh, schools. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so, Which is a, a tactic of segregationists that's been going on for, for decades. Right. Like, let's be clear, this is a white nationalist agenda. And the, you know, the policies that Betsy DeVos has pursued in terms of rolling back protections for transgender students, attacking Title IX, attacking the um, IDEA, the special education programs, attacking uh, civil, you know, the programs that <laughs> educators and advocates have been building and pushing for decades to make our schools more inclusive, equitable, and places of true multicultural learning. That's what's under attack right now. And we need people in Congress who are gonna fight that agenda tooth and nail and take a stand for our kids. When we look at the data we, of, of school segregation, um, 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education, our schools nationally are getting more, more segregated, segregated. By, by race, not less. There's a whole host of reasons why that is happening, and we need to address all of them. And that's, you know, why I'm running and what I will do when I serve in, in Congress now you That's mentioned fantastic. climate as well. Well, let <laughs> me let me cut you off though because sure. uh, I really I know that that's been a centerpiece of your activism, um, and I don't think that uh, it's just even like disheartening to hear anyone suggest that the incumbent has as credible a reputation as you on this issue because I think that that is one of the clearest distinctions uh, in terms of if people want to really get real and get bold about tackling climate and not or not. But, um, you know, we're, we're 40 minutes in and, uh, before anybody, um, walks away from this podcast, I want to ask a question about what experiences you bring that for lack of a better word, make you qualified because you've got this really strong agenda and you want to ban private charter schools and you want to, um, do a lot of things that, you know, people would might consider to be, you know, a little radical, but, um, what 
and I know that you have a law degree from University of Oregon. You have a JD, and a lot of um, Congress people, you know, have had that, and that's a that's a pretty great starting point. I don't have that. I'm considering going into law school. Um, but however you would define what credibility and experience is, um, let's talk a little bit about what you've done, what you've accomplished uh, in mm-hmm. your past that that makes you the the right candidate for the fourth district. Sure. So I have dedicated my life to standing with the most marginalized um, by our system and advocating for for change. That's who I am. And I got my start as a grassroots organizer working in rural working class communities with farmers and their neighbors to take a stand against Monsanto and uh, genetically engineered crops, which were kind of just coming in at the turn of the last century. This was around like 2001, 2002, 2003. And so GMOs were... To my public school's credit, in 2004, I was in fifth grade and they showed the documentary, The Future of Food. Uh And that made a great case about what Monsanto was doing. You know, they had... Um, GMO crops that were blowing off of trucks into farms and they were getting planted into these local farmers crop fields and then those farmers got sued for it so just uh, that that was such a such a strong enough um, I mean story that I remember it now at 26 from when I was in fifth grade Um, so that's right and so that's what we were organizing against at that time because we had farmers who were being sued by Monsanto, these Monsanto mercenaries coming onto their property, taking samples of their crops, testing them, finding their patented genetic material, and then suing the farmer who, you know, through no fault of their own, sure, unwittingly in some cases, like this happened. And so this is a classic example of a big corporation that wants power and control and is, you know, running roughshod over the rights of working class rural communities. And we have the same kind of dynamics here today with, with the Jordan Cove pipeline and with the aerial spraying um, that's going on in rural Oregon. Yep. And that's who I am, is standing with communities against these big corporations and calling them out and, and calling for change. And so when you ask about my qualifications, You know, the incumbent and I have a very different set of life experiences on a number of levels. But fundamentally, I am not a career politician. I am a community organizer, and what I do is build coalitions, bring people together, and make change happen. I am not here to uphold the status quo or play the inside game. I'm here to change the game. And that's why I'm running and that's who I am. And if we don't change this game, (laughs) our planet is in really big trouble. We have to get the influence of fossil fuels and big polluters out of politics. And I'm part of a movement of people all over the country who are working towards that. That's why I have the support of the Sunrise Movement in Eugene, in Corvallis, in Portland. That's why I have the support of Climate Hawks Vote. That's why I have the support of 350 Action, of Naomi Klein, of Bill McKibben, of Josh Fox, of the leaders of the climate movement are backing my campaign for Congress because 
they know that I'm a champion for the climate, that this isn't greenwashing for me. This is my life's work. And what I have dedicated my career to is taking a stand with communities who are fighting pipelines and coal mines and indigenous peoples who are calling for just solutions to climate change that do not infringe on their rights. And that is who I will be in Congress. And so my qualifications, you mentioned my law degree, you know, I studied with the country's preeminent legal scholars in the climate field. I studied the Paris Agreement at length. I studied the environmental statues at length. I worked as a student law clerk on the Juliana versus United States case in the, in the federal court in Eugene. I've read the evidence. I helped write the summary judgment opinion. I know climate law inside and out, and I know that we don't have the laws that we need to manage this crisis. We need a whole new framework. And Congress has the power to do that. Only Congress has the power to do that. The courts can't do it. The executive can't do it. It's Congress who has to do it. And that's why I'm running for Congress. And, you know, I've published a book uh, twice. It's called Reimagining Change. And it's all about how communities and social movements can change the story about what is possible, can change the fundamental dynamics of politics when we organize. And that's who I am and how I will approach my role representing this district. It's different than an establishment politician. This is about a people's movement and this is about giving a voice to the people in this district in the halls of power and supporting the changes that we need. Medicare for all is one of the most popular policies in America today. Sure. In, in, in Oregon, it's overwhelmingly popular amongst sure. Democrats, amongst Republicans, and independents. Hey, I'm Everybody a competitive person. <laughs> I'm half Japanese. We're, we're, Asians are competitive as hell. I don't like to see other countries in Europe trampling on us. <laughs> I don't like to see Canada kicking our ass in terms of having a greater po like percentage of their population have like a very strong health care system. Our policy in this country is basically don't get sick. Mm -hmm. And even in terms of COVID right now, that is um, we're are which being shown that, you know, um, we have done a good job of flattening the curve and we haven't overwhelmed our medical facilities in general. Thank Thank goodness. But it also means that if that uh, happens, um, that anybody who isn't impacted by COVID, you know, is going to have a much harder time getting their needs taken care of by an overwhelmed medical system uh, mm -hmm. as well. And, and I don't even want to say that in terms of we haven't been overwhelmed. I don't want to minimize what has happened in terms of um you know, I've seen a lot of videos of um, nurse pra practitioners and physicians, you know, coming home in tears every day mm -hmm. because of the serious challenges that they're facing. And, and you know, they've, people uh, will kind of think as though those people are immune to, like, seeing a patient die. That is not at all the case. People mm -hmm. are affected deeply um, mm -hmm. when they see those kinds of things happen. Um, Absolutely. And so my point is that Medicare for All is really popular. We know we need it, and other countries have it. We know how to do it. Why isn't it getting done? It's because of the grip of the health insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, 
you know, those who profit from the current model, which is clearly not serving us in the mm -hmm. ways that it should and that we deserve. Um, the only way that's going to change is if we have a mass movement of people who put people into office in Congress who are absolutely 100% committed to Medicare for all and are ready to fight for it and are ready to leverage the power of the people and bring that to bear on, on the political process. And we won't get it just because we want it. We won't get it just because we're right. We won't get it if we, you know, don't fight for it. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm running, because we need to fight for it right now. And if there was ever a time when, <laughs> you know, people were clear about what their priorities are in terms of Medicare for all, it's right now. And if sure. you are not out there advocating for health care for everyone right now in the midst of this crisis, you are not a champion for Medicare mm -hmm. for All. And that's the case with our congressman. Mm -hmm. You know, his priority has been bailing out the airlines. He sure. has said nothing about universal health care in this moment. So, you know, let, <laughs> let that be, you know, people show you who they are, not with their words, but with their actions. And, you know, this is the time to really rise in leadership and make those bold calls. And Senator Sanders is doing that. Jayapal mm -hmm. is doing that. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing that. And mm -hmm. that's those are the progressive standard bearers in the party today. Um, and that's, you know, that's where our district wants to, wants to be aligned, right. um, clearly, from the results of the election in 2016. And so I know we're, well, we're running out of time. So do you sure. have any other questions? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, well, I, I want to ask you, about sort of this is this is related to what you said about climate and about Medicare for all because we live in a time that's very politically polarized right um, and where you know I'm I'm like a anti-binaries person in general right so like I identify as non-binary in terms of my gender but I just think I'm like anti-binary in terms of our political culture as well it's not a simple you're left or you're right or you're somewhere in the middle it's kind of like all over the place right um, and so to ask you a bit of like a challenging question about, um, you know, the way that Medicare for all, which sounds great, um, for someone like you or me, um, can get framed even on the presidential debate stages with John Delaney and Pete Buttigieg talking about, you know, that's a policy that's going to take things away and, um, policies like the mm -hmm. green, like green new deal, um, climate policy will often get framed from the perspective of taking away my, uh, right to, you know, pol pollute this much or to, you know, do whatever I want in terms of Liberty. Right. So how do you respond to, um, those kinds of arguments that, you know, oh, the radical left is trying to take things away, take away people's rights, take away private insurance that, you know, some people feel is uh, adequate through their through their employer, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, labor unions in this country have fought really hard for health care. You know, my husband's included, okay? Like the fundamental contract fight we had with the University of Oregon was about our health insurance. And so nobody wants to take away great health insurance from people. What we want to do is expand the possibility of great health care for everybody. And the more uh, 
conservative wing of the Democratic Party, particularly in this presidential primary, you know, that was their narrative, like you're saying, of um, Bernie wants to take your health care away, which sure. is a narrative of fear. Right. And that is what we're seeing in this election as well. Be afraid. Be afraid. Things can't get better for you. Um, mm. so just be afraid and try to keep what you have. Um, it's a zero-sum game. And I don't lead with fear. I lead with possibility. I lead with compassion. I lead with what is possible. And if the United States Congress can suddenly write a check for $2 trillion, okay, like we can do Medicare for all. <laughs> if it is right. urgent, it will happen. And right. so we need to make it urgent. And, you know, my view is that we need a just transition in the fossil fuel sector for those who may be displaced from their jobs from a, from a Medicare for all plan. Like we can find a way forward. We can find a solution. It's about political will and it's about mm -hmm. priorities. And my priority is always gonna be to take care of working people. And if you know billionaires are upset about that, I'm, I'm okay with that. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so we need to be okay with that. Like, this is about making change and changing the fundamental um, problems in our system that create profits for very few and create poverty and suffering for millions of Americans. It doesn't have to be like that. And, you know, again, that's why I'm running for Congress. All right. I love it. I have two more questions. I promise it won't okay. be, it won't be more than two more. The, the, the last one is going to be, um, related to the title of the show. And it's something I ask everybody, but the second to last one, the penultimate question is, um, we live in this very Democrat versus Republican world, but the way that get things get done in Congress is by, um, uh, bipartisan action a whole, much mm -hmm. of the time. Right. Um, and this could be, I want to ask you to give credit to a Republican, uh, and I want, and that could be a federal Republican. It could have been a past Republican president in recent memory. It could have been the current president. It could be a state senator. Uh, anybody, um, I would love to to see um, you give credit to uh, a Republican for having done something that you agree with uh, or support. What do you think? What do you got? Um. It's hard to find an example of that in recent times, but <laughs> I could say, you know, in the 1980s, President Reagan signed off on amnesty for every undocumented person in the country. Okay, that was a Republican, mainstream Republican um, policy position. And their platform has has drifted, veered so far to the right now that that is like unthinkable. But that is where we were 30 years ago. And Democrats are to the right of that now for, for the sure. most part. Um, Many of them, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we have to consider, you know, the, the window of possibility and how to reopen it. And... Um, how to change the the political dynamics, and that's you know part of what my campaign is about. Awesome, I think that's a great answer. 
Uh, okay, so the last question, and I want to thank you so much. Doyle Canning, running for Congress in Oregon's 4th District. Really exciting campaign. Time to take a stand is the slogan. And uh, I want to ask you what I ask everybody on the podcast is what's one way we could all be a little less stupid? <laughs> um, gosh, I generally think people are always doing their best. <laughs> and so... Um, I guess, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to your question. It's I an think aggressive me, question. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, I uh, could speak pessimistic. for myself and there say, you uh, you know, I know that I perform better, that I'm sharper, um, when I take care of my health. And so I try to get enough sleep, you know, eat well exercise, all of that, it helps us think better as well as be healthier in general. So awesome. I, encur I encourage that, <laughs> I guess I would say. I got to ask a congressional <laughs> candidate that question. I love it. Well, thank you all so much. How can people support what you're doing? Uh, how can people find you on the internet? I'll, I'll, sure. I'll roll out the red carpet for you. Oh, thank you. So our website is canning congress.com and we're canning for congress on facebook and instagram canning for oregon on twitter and we have a headquarters uh on kind of the edge of the whitaker on west 6th avenue it's closed to the public right now which is such a bummer i really miss people stopping by um, but you can always stop by on social media and you can call us we're at 541-357-1206 you can text us there as well. And we want to be in touch with people during this time of social distancing. We also have a weekly coffee hour on Zoom. It's on Sundays at 10 a.m. And that is a place to stop by and ask me any questions, meet other people who are interested in the campaign, see how you can get involved. So definitely um, join us on Sunday mornings. And we also have a show on Facebook Live. It's called Between Two Furs. <laughs> and <laughs> basically my campaign manager, Kelly, hosts the show and she asks me questions that um, supporters and others write in on social media. You can private message us a question anytime and mm -hmm. we will discuss it on the Between Two Furs show. And... We need your support. We need your vote. April 28th is yes. the deadline to Registration register to deadline. vote. And, and people must be a Democrat, registered as a Democrat, in order to vote in the Democratic primary in Oregon for That's you. right. And you they can don't do have to do online. it to vote for me, but they have to do it to vote for you. Yes. And it's real important. Um, you can register through our website, canningforcongress.com slash register to vote. It'll walk you through the process. It's easy to do online. And uh, really important, if you don't do that by April 28th, you will not get a ballot to vote in this election. And you don't want to miss out. This is a really, really exciting time. And so the ballots will be coming uh, at the end of April. You'll have about two weeks to get your ballot back by May 19th. And vote canning for Congress. Tell your friends. Post on social media. Let people know about this campaign and you know if you're excited about this campaign shout it tell the world <laughs> awesome 
Thank you so much. I won't take up any of your time any further. I think you've certainly earned my endorsement and my vote. Not that that <laughs> means you, much, but I think that um, we're all really excited about what you're doing and what you're going to do for our country. Thank you, Doyle. <laughs> yeah, you are so welcome. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.